Hey, this is John Matalavich, owner of Ruthless Performance and host of the Human Advancement Podcast. In today's inaugural episode, we'll be going back into the archives with audio from a past podcast I did in conjunction with our partners at Serviceide. Um, in this podcast, along with Torn and Jimmy, Serviceide's social media coordinator and owner respectively, I talk about the value of physical preparation for hunters, as well as some of the methodologies we, we use at Ruthless Performance to ensure our hunters are as prepared as possible when entering the field. Even as a non-hunter, you may be interested in listening to this podcast as a brief look at the depth and nuance that highly skilled hunters will undergo to maximize their chance of success in the field. Um, for those of you that are hunters, this podcast may provide some insight into the largely underserved and unseen elements of physical preparation that are so desperately needed for the lay hunter. These include items like gait control, ankle health, um, coping in unforeseen circumstances, discipline, and more. For uh, more hunting-related content, find our friends at Serviceide Online on their various social media channels. Um, in conjunction with Serviceide, we plan on releasing more material uh, regarding physical preparation for big game hunters over the next few weeks and would love your input. The next podcast will primarily be about nutrition, but if you have any questions that you would like answered, uh, submit them at ruthlessperformance.com contact. Uh, without further ado, I bring you our episode from the archives on the White Tail Theories podcast with Serviceide. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the White Tail Theories podcast. We're now on episode four, and I'm Torn, your host, with Jimmy McKinney, my co-host, and we have another guest in the studio today, John. You want to say your last name? <laughs> Matalavich is great. Matt Alavich, what's not, going on? Not Matulovich. Huh? Not Matulovich. <laughs> yeah, I get Matulovich a lot, especially from telemarketers, so it's it's neither here nor there. So, uh, John's background, well, why don't you just go in and tell us a little bit about your background, what you do. Uh, sure, so I, I own uh, Ruthless Performance. Uh, I guess the reason I, I'm here is because one of my, uh, one of the groups of athletes that I work with, one of our populations is uh, is hunters. Um, which is kind of unique in the uh, in the fit, fitness world and in the hunting world to kind of combine those two things, um, and then even insofar as there is um, a crossover of fitness and hunting, um, we are really not uh, in favor of some of the strategies that are out there. Um, they could lead to a lot of injuries. Some of the things that guys are doing to kind of get in shape for the for uh, for the whitetail season or big game hunt out west, it's it's not necessarily what they should be doing. So, um, again, I own Ruthless Performance. Um, my background, I'm an applied physiologist, so I have four years of training in um, exercise science, then an additional year in um, uh, political science and business administration. So, degree is basically a public health administration degree, all things considered. Okay, okay. Uh, so, uh, aside from uh, the big game aspect, you also work with uh, athletes other athletes as well, uh, primarily swimmers, correct? Yep, I work with a, a lot of swimmers. So by volume, the greatest population of athletes we work with is CrossFit athletes. So they have their regular CrossFit workouts, but then in addition to that, um, we'll also assign them corrective exercises that they'll um, either do at the beginning of their workout or um, it's all worked out on an individual basis. So by quantity, we work with um, a significant amount of CrossFit athletes, uh, close to 300 um, up to this point, 
Um, but wow. then by quality and by what we work with on the most regular basis, it, it is swimmers. Um, that just mostly comes from my background in high school and college as a swimmer. Um, and that kind of led into, into what I do professionally. So I had a, a lot of success in high school just by, um, in, in my own swimming career, just because of weight training. Um, so that kind of led me into the profession that I'm, that I'm now in. Okay. So we ask all our guests this, um, how did you get into hunting and like, what was your kind of progression as a hunter? Uh, if you want to touch on that a little bit. Yeah, so it's something I've actually been thinking about a lot as of late, as I've been trying to introduce some new first-timers out into the field. Um, I want to say, it, in, in some respects, it was like a pretty traditional upbringing um, into, the, into the sport where, um, you know, I had grandparents so that hunted, they were bow hunters, so there was some tradition involved. Um, but there was definitely a lull in my um, hunting between, like, middle school and high school because of swimming actually because mm. it basically the same exact season so right. you know it was, it was almost a matter of picking one or the other so at a young age i had um i had some pretty fond hunting experiences um you know and then that even led me to being um just you know, leaving from behind my grandparents house and going into the woods going on hikes things like that by myself at a young age probably like eight or nine um, so that, that gave me a good amount of independence, which it probably even assisted in some of the business ownership side of things. Um, but then ultimately I kind of came back to it after swimming ended just as a means, not necessarily of, uh, of the competitive side of things, but just, um, as it relates to, um, just, you know, kind of some, some hobby with some sense of purpose, some goal oriented hobby. Um, so I've just gotten back into it. I've been fortunate enough. I had, you know, hand-me-downs and things like that. So right off the bat, even when I started hunting, it was kind of, um, I had all of the material to get hunting, but um, a lot of it is just DIY. Like I've just figured a lot of the stuff out. So some of the stuff people just would otherwise know just from, you know, either hunter safety courses or whatever. But a lot of it I just kind of had to figure out as I go. and Trial and error. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, a lot of the conclusions I came to just end up just being regular hunting strategies, but um, it's it's worked out for me. I, I, I kind of like um, going into it not knowing what other people do because it gives me a little bit more leeway. Um, I get to just kind of immediately see what works, what doesn't, those kind of things. But so I was able, like I said, it was fortunate. I was fortunate in that I was able to start um, with the material, but not necessarily the education. So I want to say. A, I was, it was nice having my family that brought me into it, but at the same time, there was enough of a gap that I had to kind of go about it on my own. Gotcha, gotcha. So, diving into uh, kind of the meat and potatoes of this podcast here, uh, I have a couple, uh, I guess, personal questions for my own, and we've discussed this so John and I are friends. Um, we've gone hunting together. We've gone on camping trips, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And uh, whenever I have uh, fitness-related questions, I usually bounce them off of him and then get his answer and then go from there. But uh, And I do likewise do with hunting. Right, right, exactly. Um, so one of the big things that I realized from my western hunting, going out elk hunting and um, mountain whitetail hunting, is how important it is to take care of your ankles and then foot strength. Mm-hmm. So you told me that kind of like 
it starts at your feet. So if you have improper footwear or mm-hmm. your feet aren't strong, that basically fatigues the rest of your entire body going up. Totally, totally. So if you want to just touch on that a little bit and maybe for guys that like are doing mountain hunting, mountain hunting or going out west and they have improper footwear or they're doing the wrong type of training, um, just just bring that to light a little bit. Okay. Um, well, one of the things I like to talk about is something called the, uh, the joint by joint theory which was uh, popularized by uh, Mike Boyle. He's a strength and conditioning coach out of Boston, but I, I believe it was, um, it was formulated by a physical therapist named Greg Cook. And the joint-by-joint theory just states that um, joints are ideally supposed to alternate in function um, between mobility and stability. So your ankle joint is supposed to be able to move all over the place, whereas your knee joint is basically just supposed to be able to move front and back. And then your hips should be able to move all over the place. Um, it gets a little bit more finicky in the spine, but that lumbar spine, lower part of the spine, not supposed to move all that much. Thoracic spine should move more, and so on. But as it relates to the foot, and what you see with hunters is they wear these big boots. So when they're wearing these big boots, unfortunately, their ankles can't move as much as they should be moving. Um, and a lot of people will go in the opposite direction and say, you know, you shouldn't have these big giant boots on. I, I, wear, I wear comically large boots, so I, I understand the value that the boots place, especially when you're sitting in a tree stand and you're trying to keep your feet warm. I get it. Um, so I don't advocate necessarily for like a minimalist or next to no footwear when you're in the field. But the important thing um, is ankle and foot care when you're outside of the field. Um, and that helps out a lot. Um, if, if people at home are actually interested in, in these comically large boots I have, they're the, uh, uh, the Irish Setter uh, the Elk Trackers. Mm-hmm. They have like a thousand gram thin slate in them, so they're like... I had those before. Three or four pound boots mm-hmm. each. They're, they're pretty big. But, uh, so, I, I, like I, I see the value in that. But, but when you're not in the field, you need to be making sure that you're caring for that so that when you're in the field, it's not an issue. So... <clears throat> What would you say? All right. If oh, and, and just before I, I get too far away from that, actually, sorry. Um, so what happens is when the ankle can't move too much, then that knee, which is supposed to be stable, um, can't. It it needs to bear that mobility uh, burden of the ankle, so that knee becomes uh, less stable than it should be. So that causes having bad feet or bad ankles can actually cause knee pain or it could cause uh, lower back pain. It just really um, causes issues up the chain. So making sure those feet are, are in the right position is, is just a, a must right off the bat. And that's something people should be considered when they're, when they're trying to work on their, their fitness for, for being in the field. I, I've, yeah, that's, that's 100% correct because I've noticed that firsthand. When I had my basketball injury and uh, sprained the ligaments in my ankle uh, the very next hunting season instead of like my ankle would be fine at, like during the hunt mm-hmm. but I felt all the pain in my knee yeah that makes it that, that makes a lot of sense um, and you said it was a basketball injury which makes a lot of sense too because chances are you're wearing high tops so those ankles are, are just as hindered and they you can't do what they're supposed to do mm-hmm. which isn't such an issue sometimes but when you're doing something like basketball and you're jumping, your landing mechanics are completely skewed from what they should be. The weird thing is, uh, so I've never sprained my ankle in low tops. And now, I like, when I play basketball, I, I strictly just wear low tops. I don't wear high tops anymore. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, um, 
Jimmy, you've hunted out west. How has your experience with footwear, what um, like trials and tribulations have you gone through in, in your experience hunting out there in regards to uh, potentially joint fatigue, leg fatigue, any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually really glad you asked this question. So I only recently started hunting out west in the last couple years. And uh, the first year I went out west, I, I decided I want to get the lightest footwear that I could possibly find. So I got some Sportivas. Um, they're they're Gore-Tex. There's really, I mean, no leather. I was like, there's going to be no break-in. They're going to be really light. It's going to be awesome. And I thought that they were a pretty good performing shoe. And uh, this this last trip out west, I got some heavier Loas. And, and maybe, Torn, you, you know which ones that they wore. But um, a lot heavier shank and the difference between that heavier um, boot versus the, the lighter one was like exponentially different. Um, and I really, really started to notice that because before I went out west uh, to Colorado this year, um, I did my scouting up in Pennsylvania, up in the big mountains, wearing those boots. And the, there was something that I realized, like when I'd be walking up the, the mountains, instead of my, my heel flexing and, and being able to, to, to bend down, um, they kept it more rigid and I had way, way less fatigue in my, in my calves. And, um, you know, before I would wear like muck boots and stuff like that. And I didn't realize just how much, just how much of a lack of support that there, there was with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've gone through the whole muck boot thing and like, I, I don't use them at all for running anymore. I think a lack of support is fine. So as long as you're thinking about your feet. But right. when you're out there and you're not, you're hiking 10 miles, you're going up hills, whatever, and you start getting a little bit lazier with your gait or your mm-hmm. movement cycle with your feet, that's when that's or when just it does fatigue too. Exactly. Which is another reason I do advocate for a heavier shoe in the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the the rest of the time, I'm like I said, I mean, you're, you're hunting, you know, if you're lucky, you're hunting 80 days a year, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, but the rest of the time, you have that other 280 days a year where um, you really should be working towards a more minimalist style footwear. Um, and one of the things I'll, I'll point people to is um, on the site, we actually have an article on um, uh, on uh, footwear for for hunters um, when they're in the when they're not in the field. Um, and we also have an associated footwear guide. It's basically the same text from the uh, article, but it's on the Instagram page under the footwear guide um, section on top of the Instagram, which is at Ruthless Perform. And that just goes into detail on some of the minimalist style footwear that I do enjoy and, and that I can advocate for on a regular basis. Um, again, there's some issues with, um, not necessarily with minimalist footwear itself, but the transition to minimalist footwear. I mean, if you're, uh, if, if you're, you know, maybe in your thirties or forties and you've spent your whole life wearing logger boots, your heel cord is going to be uh, very short as opposed to what it should have been or what it might be for a younger person with um, a little bit more experience in, in the barefoot footwear. In barefoot footwear. So um, again, I advocate for it, but I would want to incorporate it slowly. But again, there's, you can read a little bit more about that in, the, in that footwear guide that we have. Yeah, and I'll put that, I'll put that in the show notes. And then I, I just want to add something to like this more minimalistic thing. And, and this is an absolute game changer for you Northern hunters. Um, you can get away with the lighter boots, like the Loas that I was mentioning. I forget the name of the model. Uh, they had some, they had some insulation to them. But get yourself a pair of overboots. Arctic Shield makes a pair, and they're super lightweight. They'll slip in your backpack, and then when you get set up, 
you just pull them over your boots. They insulate you and they'll keep you toasty warm. That's and now, yeah, now you're not sacrificing when you're when you're hiking in and you having that extra wheat. Exactly. And then your feet get cold. It's, it's absolutely game changer. So that's that's a little nugget if you haven't tried those out. I mean, it's well worth the, the money. Yeah, I have I have two more pieces on this. Two related specifically to actually to hunting. Uh, one of which. This is actually a question for you fellas. Have you heard, have you guys either used the Mickey Mouse boots or the bunny boots, the uh, military style boots? Um, like with the air air chamber type yes, thing? Yes, yes. I don't know much about that, but go ahead. So um, I, I haven't uh, used these either, but they're, you get them at military surplus stores, so they're not all that expensive. But the, the one version from how I understand it is these Mickey Mouse boots, um, and they're good to like negative 30, and then these... Uh, the other ones are good to like negative 60 or something crazy <laughs> but it's because they do have they have air pockets within oh, it oh so it's like, um, where it's like down basically well, it works like a window so you have a two pane window in between yeah. there and air is actually a very good insulator, insulator. yeah so that's but the, here's I, I've seen those actually John and the thing is I'm a skeptic it's like if they're truly worth that good then why aren't people wearing them you know I, I don't know but I <laughs> honestly but at the same time I've never had an issue with any military surplus stuff okay I, I've I've really it's done well for me in the past um, I've kind of gotten away from it just stylistically more than functionally sure um, but I I mean I've heard good things about them I don't know and I actually have heard of uh, people uh like cold weather, like oil line workers uh, wearing those on a regular basis, but I I don't know I and I don't know if it's that's kind of why I wanted to just ask you fellows because I I wasn't sure if because they do have those air chambers this I I'm saying I'm not advocating for these because I'm I'm unsure yeah. but maybe because they have those air chambers they're not good for long distance tracking I'm I'm not entirely no, sure I I think it's a great question and, and something we said from the the introductory podcast is like we want the users to engage in this so. Uh, if you're listening to this and you know, I mean, give us a comment because that, yeah. that's that's a great question. I'd, I'd love to hear. And the the other thing, um, just this isn't even fitness related, from just from a, a, a warm foot perspective. One thing that has been a game changer for me, um, especially for East, Eastern style hunting, where you can get away with this, is um, when you make it to the stand, actually unlacing your boots, just because that creates that that extra barrier, that extra layer of in, air. To insulate your boots, uh, I thought I thought it would be the exact opposite, where you just want to just crank those things down, but mm -hmm. you're you're losing out on on all that additional space. I I don't know how common knowledge that is for hunters, but it's something that's been a game changer for me. Yeah, that that and I'll, t I'll tell you something old school that my dad did since since I was a kid, and um, that's changing your socks when you get into your stand, taking an extra pair of socks. Um, now that I'm a little more scent conscious, you know, you gotta make sure you have something for that. And and the other thing to relate to that, John, with the air. Um, you don't want to cut off your circulation. You yeah. Know? So if you're if you're if you're cranked too tight, man, you're you're not getting blood flow in there too. So that can make you cold. Yeah, but I mean, even just unlacing them to the point where you won't be able to walk around too much. But yeah, that, okay. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's just something that I hadn't put much thought to up until recently. So I had I got the glove situation figured out. That's something I use that's actually military surplus. I have these these big like uh, Stalingrad style just buffalo hide <laughs> gloves. And they, those right? things are amazing. Yeah. Okay. They are they are crazy. And you get this at a surplus store. Uh yeah, yeah. I'll uh, I could actually when I when I get home I'll, I'll send you guys a picture. You could put them up. I have two pairs. I have like a more moderate temperature pair. And by moderate temperature I mean like I don't know, negative ten plus. <laughs> oh and then the other ones are like just like over gloves. They're they're insane absolutely so insane go to go to russia on a boar hunt or something yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's crazy yeah um so to kind of like bring it back into into focus here um so 
why don't we why don't we break down potentially what a person should be looking male and female mm -hmm. for a uh, workout routine but let's start it like this what do you think uh, hunters should be focusing on to prepare for the season and this is going to be the type of hunter that's hunting public land potentially walking anywhere from a mile mm -hmm. to five miles to get to their stand uh, having to have long drag outs with um, either white tails. We'll start with Eastern, then we'll, we'll work our way west. Okay, um, one thing before we leave the, the footwear side of things entirely, um, one, again, not, not to get too crazy in this, but this is exercise related. So one of the exercises that I actually advocate for to help strengthen the feet, because your feet do get lazy um, mm -hmm. just being in, in those just giant shoes all the time. So one of the exercises I actually really advocate for is something called a blinded contralateral dumbbell hold. It sounds terrible. It sounds complicated. It's really not that bad. Um, and it, it, it's one of the few exercises that we do, which, which is blinded. And by blind, we mean physically. You cannot actually see while you're doing this. And if you ha if you have, if you folks have a dumbbell at home, you could you could do this pretty easily. Um, all you need to do is um, take one dumbbell, probably somewhere between uh, 15 to 25 pounds, maybe even 10 pounds, um, just a very moderate weight, maybe 10% of your body weight. Um, and then what you want to do is say I'm going to start with my right foot on the ground. I'm going to take that dumbbell. I'm going to put it in my left hand. I'm going to take my left foot off the ground and hold it up like I'm marching. And then while I'm doing that, I'm going to just close my eyes, set it, have a timer set for like 30 seconds, and then do the same thing on the other side. Sounds super easy, but just the strength uh, that it requires in, through your foot is insane. And the way you get better at that is through something called uh, the tripod foot stance, which is basically just trying to distribute the weight between your heel just inside of your big toe and just inside of your small toe. Those are the three points of contact that you want to maintain in that exercise. Um, that's a pretty fantastic exercise. And, you know, if you're flat-footed, it's going to be hard as hell, but it actually helps correct flat-footedness. Um, again, a remarkable exercise. And then what most people have to do is just a bit of a touch-and-go where they're just doing a bit of a, of a gas pedal to the ground just to kind of help stabilize themselves because it, it is a killer. And... Uh, I use that for other populations too, uh, like either, uh, I work with uh, board sport athletes, like paddle boarders, mm -hmm. uh, their feet fatigue really quickly, and this is one of the easy ways to just kind of work on that. Again, that's a blinded contralateral dumbbell hold. I think, I think we did that for our basketball workout routine. I think we did it for that end track actually in college when I ran track in college. But anyway, um, yeah, so now... Moving on to um, what you think would be uh, some of the most important things to get ready for the season. Like let's 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 break down what you think um, going into the season. What that type of person that I mentioned earlier, public land hunter that's hunting anywhere from a mile to five miles in, should uh, do to get ready. Because I know that a lot of times when I get into hunting season, I'm really not doing anything but hunting. So my whole summer and stuff, I'm relying on that. And as it gets, you get closer and closer to the better part of the season, you get more and more out of shape. Right. So you stop wanting to go as far. 
and then like you start having mind games play against you. Yeah. <laughs> so I I would so I don't want to get too specific into the population here because this is something where it's very encompassing across the population. Um, most hunters could just benefit more from general fitness. Um, if you find a workout routine that you like, regardless of what it is, for the most part, it's going to be better than not. Right. Um, there aren't too many things like I'm not not going to so it's hunters tend to be a pretty sedentary population um when we get to the level of like very elite western hunters there will be a little bit more of specific recommendations but realistically as a hunter you're trying to maximize all the things that we're evolved as a species to try to maximize for so cardiovascular health strength in the field um, like we said, ankle mobility, all these things need to work concurrently. And to say one thing or the other, there's not all that much that we could say. Um, there are a few muscle groups that I think we should work on. Uh, we should target more than other populations might need to. Um, and I say that as someone that doesn't necessarily like focusing too much on muscle groups as I usually like to focus on, on patterns. Um, explain that a little bit, like the, sure, sure. Thank you. Yeah. I get, I get, I get ahead of myself sometimes. So, um, traditionally what you'll see in, um, if you were to open a fitness magazine, they would have programs kind of, uh, broken down by, um, you know, chest and triceps this day, back and biceps this day, legs this day, um, which works great if you're a bodybuilder, but it's, it's very unnecessary for the majority of, of populations. And when you're looking at something like a hunter, which I view as an athlete that's trying to put together... Uh, a more cohesive and successful hunt, we can't train these things in isolation usually. That being said, there are some shortcuts where thinking about it like a bodybuilder can actually work to our advantage. And a few of those things that work to our advantage are, oddly enough, one of the things that we have to train is the butt. Because what happens is we're carrying those heavy packs, we start leaning too much, um, and we place a significant amount of strain on that lower back. Um, and one of the things that's unique to the lower back is we'd say it has like a, a relatively low capillary density. What that means is the back, the lower back doesn't get very good blood flow, so it takes a very long time to recover. So if you're at a hunt camp for, you know, four or five, six days, by the end of that, um, there's a pretty high likelihood that your back is going to be bothering you. Um, that's not necessarily the case if you're uh, regularly... Uh, training the glutes because the glutes could actually bear a lot of the responsibility that that lower back would otherwise have to so to train the butt is as weird as it is as a hunter it's something you want to do uh, same thing for the hamstrings um, as it relates to knee pain most it is very very rare for people to get knee pain that have really strong hamstrings almost unheard of and with training something like the hamstrings what we're looking for is both is training both of their functions. So the hamstrings do two different things. They do what we call hip extension, which is standing up in something like a deadlift. Um, and they also do lower leg flexion, which is what you'd see in like a commercial gym where you're doing a leg curl. Um, both of those things should be trained pretty extensively. Leg curl is something that most people will neglect. And I see people neglecting it even in the fitness community. Like I said, I, I, at this up to this point, we've worked with almost uh, closing in on 300 CrossFitters. So one of their th big things is they don't like using machines, 
But what happens when they don't use machines is that lower leg flexion, that hamstring curl movement gets completely neglected and it actually causes issues at the knee. So even people that are fitness conscious are missing out on that. So when you have a population that isn't really thinking much about fitness, like hunters tend to be, your likelihood of knee pain skyrockets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Do you have anything to say about the back, Mr. Chiropractor? So, yes, for you guys that don't know, um, I actually have a degree in exercise science as well, kinesiology, and my, my full-time professional job, I'm a chiropractor. So um, where John is, is down in the trenches trying to help people to correct things and, and, and keep things from getting bad, um, 90% of the people that walk through my door in the office are people that are bad, okay? Um, they're coming in because they have pain. And so my, my objective is to, A, get them out of pain, and then, and then B, uh, correct that, that function. But because I'm, I don't do physical therapy in my office and, and, and things like what John does, um, I, I don't get a chance to do all the, the muscle rehabilitation. But if you can be proactive now, you know, especially if you're a younger hunter, and, and not let that stuff get, get worse and manifest into a bigger problem, um, you can be proactive and not have the, the spine problems that, that I deal with on a daily basis. And so, and one of the nice things about that too, kind of to, to where you come from is more from a, you take people that are at like a negative five and you bring them up to a baseline, you bring them to where you, they should be. Whereas what I'm focusing on more is, like you said, that proactivity where we're trying to get ahead of these things. And, you know, one of the things that I always, I always say to people is that that Ben Franklin quote that um, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And it really does not take much to get, a, get ahead of it. Um, and in some ways, going back to the whole the dichotomy of training and how, how I, I like to think about things, um, another one of the benefits of something like uh, training the hamstrings is and even training them just actually for muscle size is the bigger the cross section of the muscle is the more surface area there is for energy to dissipate over so if you take two people that are approximately the same weight but one of those uh, people has bigger hamstrings and you were to you know both of them were to take maybe a tumble out of a tree stand whatever you want to call it uh, something like that, or you know, taking a, a bigger jump than maybe they should have to get to a, the next rock or something like that. Just by having a physically bigger cross section of muscle, that's more surface area to distribute the force of their landing over. So less likely for injury, less likely for pain, more likely to spend more time in the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, let's face it: if you're if you're listening to this podcast, you're a passionate hunter. Um, you want to be doing this as long as possible, so taking this information and implementing it into your life, you want to be able to hunt as long as you can. Um, we all know people that have stopped hunting because they're no longer able to do it physically. So Well, absolutely. Or they or they can't physically get back in where there's deer and they get burned out because they're not seeing deer. Yeah, so, yeah that's part you know, of it too. Like, this, this is the cool thing about dropping this podcast right now in the middle of January. Is yeah, like you have time to get ahead of it. You got time to get ahead of it, yeah. you know, and then you can train and and like with a purpose and and like if you have a goal and you set a goal, like you're not just working out because you want to lose weight or feel a little better. Like you have a goal that you're gonna go out and you're actually gonna kick some butt in the woods this fall. Like that that like if you if you actually tie something to a goal, you're gonna be way more successful. And this this will 100 percent turn into success. It'll 100 percent. Like 
being physically, being more physically fit, not just only improves your mental toughness, but your ability to get access to places where other people can't. That's right. huge. Right. And then we're talking, tie this back to whitetail theories. I mean, like you guys are probably like, oh, what's this, what's this physical therapy kind of talk? I mean, guys, this is about hunting, right? If you get, if you get away from people, uh, you're going to increase your success. And I'll, I'll throw something out here and I'll probably talk about this in the future too, but if you guys have Onyx maps, uh, there's a really cool feature that you can use. It's called roadless areas. And you turn that on and there's a purple overlay on the maps and you can actually, it'll actually highlight areas that are the furthest away from human activity. And, and I can tell you right now, I've, I've played with this a little bit and, and in the, in the late season doing deer drives and things, I've actually seen an increase of deer sign, um, on those roadless areas and I've marked stuff. So there, there's, there's something to that where, where deer get pushed back into these pockets. And, and that's a whole other, a whole other rabbit hole we can go down, but get yourself fit so that it's not a burden to get back in a little bit deeper. I did not know that about Onyx. That, that is awesome. There's some cool features on yeah. there. One of the other things too, about just not, I, I actually don't think about um, foot care or ankle care all that much, but when it comes to hunters, it just tends to be the first thing. But one of the other things, um, just from that and from something that we call proprioception, which is just your general um, kind of awareness in space, um, well, your proprioception, that awareness through as you move through space, is actually enhanced when you train, like when you train movements as opposed to body parts. Now, one of the other benefits of this proprioception as it relates to hunting is um, gait recognition. So your ability to move your feet, it actually reduces your overall noise as you're trudging through the forest. You know where your foot position is better. You recognize when you step on a twig, you can distribute your weight over the other foot more or on a different part of your foot. You can do so many different things. It's, it's almost hard. Um, as someone who basically came into um, my solo hunting from the fitness background, it's some of the benefits of fitness are almost lost on me just because I come into it with it. Mm. But that is one thing I noticed even just in group hunts. Dude, we just spent 10 minutes talking about this on the other podcast about how Jimmy, like when he enters the, the one area that he hunts, like noticing how he walks through that area, taking his time making sure that he's like basically crawling through that area to get to a stand has been huge for you. That's very impactful. And, and the thing is like, I've had the most success when the leaves are wet. So this, here's something I just recently talked about um, with my cousin. And I, I, I said this before, I really can't wait to get on the podcast because he's like so full of energy and he's got the, some of the wildest thoughts. But um, you know, something we talked about and I've seen this firsthand with like black bear. If you guys ever black bear hunted like over bait, you know, I've, I've been to Canada and done it where they just like show up out of nowhere. I mean, and, and maybe John, you know, some of the, some of this stuff too. There's something with this, the, the muscles in there, in their paws that they're able to distribute the, the weight, um, same as like a tiger. Mm -hmm. So like if there's, if there's a twig, I mean, they can cup over that and they literally don't crack the twig. And, and, the, and that goes just into what you were just saying about like this, mm -hmm. how you step in your gait and distributing that weight. And, and, you know, if, and honestly, I don't have that that strength in my feet, and, and I'm really interested in this contralateral foot exercise you're talking about and working on that because um, there are there are minimalistic hunting stalking boots out there. Uh, Russell Moccasin, they're super expensive, 
um, they make something and, and there's a couple different options. And when you get away from those clunky footwear and you can actually distribute your weight, I mean, the, I mean, think about an Indian, right? Mm-hmm. They, they were moccasins. There's essentially no rubber tread there and they could sneak in and, 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 and kill animals um, with, with primitive weapons. So um, just, just tying that back into what you're explaining there. No, that, that's, it's all one and the same. And so even as it re- so we have two things, two kind of separate subjects here that are actually um, intertwined. So on one hand, we're talking about uh, joint health. And on the other hand, we're talking about noise in the forest. But they're actually one and the same because the more noise you're producing is is just a byproduct of more energy being put into the ground. Yeah. And that more energy, making that more noise, is also more energy that's dissipating through your joints further up the chain. Mm-hmm. So the quieter you could walk, the healthier your joints are going to be. That makes a lot of sense, that yeah. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Um, I got a question for you, John. This is kind of just my own <clears throat> personal uh interest here so if i wanted to break down um things that i think that or if i want to break down things that i need to train for for this upcoming season um how would a person go about doing that so how do i do a self-examination on myself on things that i need to improve on check yourself before you wreck yourself yeah that that, that type of deal uh, so that, that's a good question. I, that's something I, I don't necessarily have a straightforward answer to. But one of the nice things, um, you have a lot of leeway in how you can, can approach it. Um, so more than anything, I, I like seeing some direct results from my fitness. Besides, you know, besides just having success in the field, I like having some, some quantitative and qualitative metrics that I could base my training off of, which is why I continue to train as a powerlifter. Do you need to train as a powerlifter to be successful in, in the, on the hunt? No, not at all. It's something I found where I could strive for these numbers. It's something that's actionable. It's something that I could follow. Um, I think people should do likewise. Um, one of the issues, one of the things I will take issue with is some of, um, some of, <clears throat> I'll, I'll go so far as to call it sports-specific training. So sports-specific training for the hunt uh, does indeed exist. So that's, that's what you see more conventional training for the hunt looking like. So that's, um, you know, ruck marches, things like that. I don't necessarily think that's what people should be doing to prepare for the hunt because uh, just of the nature of overuse injuries. So if you're in the field, like I said, you know, well, graciously that 80 days a year, um, and you're going to double down on pack walks, that's more time you're going to be in those boots. That's more time that you're placing stress on the lower, on, on that lower back. Um, so I would just pick pretty conventional fitness goals. Um, you reduce body fat, enhance your cardiovascular capacity, um, some some metrics I like, um, so I, I I think your your squat is a pretty good thing to get that honed in on, get the deadlift honed in on. Don't just go about it willy nilly, but just act, get it figured out. Technique first. Um, high box step ups are a fantastic exercise, but they're not going to be um, something that you could necessarily use as a testing exercise. But pick conventional fitness goals. Um, even like if you're, if you have access to a fitness facility, um, I really like, um, the concept two rower or your rowing machine in general, 
um, and working to improve your time on, on that Concept 2 rower is a fantastic idea. I think it's the Concept 2 rower is a fantastic uh, cardiovascular um, enhancement tool, but it's also a corrective tool because the nature of rowing is just extension. And extension is basically going from a flexed forwards, like seated hunched position to almost upright, but while you're on a rower. So just the nature of doing that is going to help uh, correct where your muscles sit while enhancing cardiovascular capacity. Um, so there's, I don't yet have a straightforward answer as to what someone should be training for, but traditional fitness goals are a pretty good place to start. Okay. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So um, you had mentioned about uh, the, the rock marching and I just heard this the other day. For some reason, it just like it made so much sense. I don't know why. Like I overlooked it, but uh, overtraining is something that I think a lot of people like overlook. So you can let let's use a ruck march as a, a specific example. If you are getting ready for an elk hunting trip and you throw in eighty pounds in that backpack and you go for a five mile hike. Is that 80 pounds better than doing, uh, let's say you're, you're going to do a total of 50 miles a week, and I'm just spitballing numbers. Is it better to do that, or is it better to break that weight in half, 40 pounds, do like three miles, and then just do that every day? You understand? So yep. it's not having so much... Shorter intervals the, are something I will tend to side with normally because the value of shorter intervals is your mind is still in it more. Um, as you close in on the tail end of a longer pack march or any kind of longer cardiovascular uh, challenging event, you're going to, that's when sports injuries are gonna happen. Because mm -hmm. you're not thinking as much, you're just trying to get through it, you're kind of relying on passive structures more. And by passive structures, I mean, you're relying more on your bones and your ligaments as opposed to good muscle positioning to kind of carry you through. So shorter bouts are, are always a good idea, which is also why in the gym for some of these strength training exercises like deadlift, I, I advocate for almost the opposite of what other people do. So some people are like three sets of 10 repetitions on something like a deadlift, whereas I advocate more for something like 10 sets of three. Um, shorter bouts, more time spent thinking consciously about the pattern itself. Well, I mean, I, I always relate it back to um, when you're out practicing your bow, mm -hmm. you're better off maintaining a better form than just repetition or than just shooting and then getting fatigued and your form breaking down. To see you sloppy. Yeah. And, and, and to I add mean, to that, what's the most important shot you take when you practice? First one. Yeah. The first shot. Because when you're in the woods, what's the only shot that matters? I don't know. I've knocked out three on a couple of occasions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. No. I, I agree completely. And you, you want you want to be reinforcing good technique as opposed to bad technique. Because um, I fall into that a lot. Where like I I definitely think that I overdo it quite a bit. But as I'm getting older and smarter, I'm reverting back. But one of the things about having like a pretty, um, pretty regimented strength and conditioning regimen or a, uh, a just a, a pretty regimented workout routine, one of the benefits of it is 
you don't necessarily need to do as much sports specific work. So the benefit of doing this stuff is you don't need to do some of that stuff that you don't like. Like I would, I would hate doing ruck marches. I really would. I would get better at them a lot faster than not doing it. But by doing just general strength and conditioning training, I'm better at that. And a broad, and just broad, broadly, I'm better at things across um, hunting the hunting realm as opposed to just focusing on each specific task. General athleticism applies to most things. So, and one of the things that you might want to talk about is, so I basically train to be a hunter, but I train fundamentally as an all-around athlete. I work on whatever the, the weaknesses are. So, whereas with any of my athletes, they come to me for their or they come to Ruthless Performance for their strength and conditioning work, and then they have a skill-specific coach. Well, with me, my skill-specific work is hunting, usually. But imagine skill-specific work being at um, the tip of a pyramid of your athletic abilities. The base of that pyramid is your just general athletic and strength and conditioning output across all different movement patterns, everything. Well, the broader that base is, the easier it is to build to that peak in a different domain. So one of the things that just by focusing on strength and conditioning so much, I was able to transition from focusing on hunting to focusing on um, that cross-country bicycle trip. And that took no time whatsoever. So I, I started thinking about that in February. I announced it in March, and then by September, I started. And that is with almost no bicycle training. When I started that, when I went into thinking about doing cross-country trip on the bicycle, I didn't even own a bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just because of the value of strength and conditioning. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that... I'm not saying that everyone is interested in spending so much time in the gym, spending so much time working out, but you do have bouts of 30 or 40 minutes here and there that you can devote to fitness that you couldn't otherwise devote to hunting. Right, for sure. There's, I mean, you know, as much as nice as it would be to go, you know, doing a pack run at 8 o'clock at night or 9 o'clock at night in the winter, it's just, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Whereas you can go to a gym. So... so- can I interrupt for a quick yeah, second? So, so the Torn and John are, are buddies. Um, I just learned about this today. Just real quick, you just said a cross country bicycle trip. Just yeah. make it sound like real nonchalant. Where did you start? So, yeah, good point. Good point. And where did you end? <laughs> I uh, so I I started um, this. So uh, my company sponsored uh, um, and hosted fundraising initiatives for um, two local uh, dog rescues. Um, and the base, the backbone of the event was a me doing a cross-country bike trip, cycling trip from uh, San Francisco to Pottsville. So okay. 3,900 miles on a steel frame bike. If nobody knows Pottsville, that's where Yingling Lager is yep, made. Yep, <laughs> yeah, so that's Pennsylvania. Yep, yep. Yeah. So uh, that, was, um, that was self uh, It was a solo, unsupported uh, bike trip cross-country. And how long did that take? Uh, 43 days. That's incredible. So, Jeez. Yeah. It was averaging just under 100 miles a day. So, you know, that... And we can get it. Tell him about how you went the wrong lap. He, that, <laughs> that was day one. That was a little bit demoralizing. <laughs> day one. Yeah, 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 I, you know, it's... <laughs> oh, man. I, uh, so on day one, I 
the first time I, I looked back at my GPS that was sitting on um, on like the handlebar rack in front of me just to see how many miles I had done. Um, you know it's an issue when the entire topography looks nothing like it's supposed to. <laughs> like there is a giant, when there's a giant body of water that is not supposed to be there, it's an issue. Oh, it's the, like the Pacific Ocean? Yeah. I feel like it's Road not coast. Good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was so funny. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, so that took, that, but that was a good event. That was actually, that coincided with um, some of the hunting season, so I was actually able to, uh, to kind of see some of the guys out west do, do some of their stuff while I was crossing, but. That's cool. Yeah, across the Continental Divide at Monarch and Colorado, and no, it was a good event, but it comes back to the same thing of just uh, strength and conditioning just being uh, just a prerequisite for anything. So I want to I want to kind of digress here because we didn't really get into it, but um, and I know that uh, Jimmy's going to chime in here, but uh, you were talking about overtraining, and I kind of want to talk about how um, the whole like campaigns effect. Okay, here what I'd like to do right here is actually I'm going to read something from one of my from one of my articles, but it's actually a definition from my exercise physiology textbook. Oh, just so everyone's on the same page, just so we have a clear definition of what overtraining is that we could all agree on. Um, overtraining is an accumulation of training stress that impairs an athlete's ability to perform training sessions and results in long-term decrements of performance. Okay. All right, so we're all on the same page about that because just, just so we know this, this, the actual scientific role because some people could think I'm tired today, so I'm overtraining. But it's 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 more long term than that. It's a it's a so it, it's it's basically saying like the the breakdown of your body over time yep. is overtraining. Yes. Okay. So let's dive into that. <clears throat> I know we've talked about it um, multiple times, and how Cam Haynes is a really good and and can be and is looked. <clears throat> high on the, the list of ambassadors for hunting, but um, kind of portrays like uh, an unobtainable and potentially uh, inaccurate light of, of training, correct? Yes. And, and what the normal person should be shooting for. So I think what... Or maybe not even just a normal person, just yeah. like I know we said this before, like there's probably a really good chance that Cam Haynes' body is going to break down and by the time he's 60 or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. like. He, him having the so I think I wouldn't necessarily consider what he's accomplished in the realm of overtraining because there doesn't appear to be that long term degrade de, yeah deterioration de, yeah deterioration to performance um, he manages to do the same thing he seems to be getting better at a lot of these things it worked for him it can work for others <clears throat> but that's after years and years and years and years of extensive training so when people that are interested in getting it first timers getting into hunting um, they see this guy they think to be a hunter you need to go out and you need to run a marathon no you don't need to do that um, can you do that and can it be a successful part of it can it be an integral part of your hunting training sure it can he does it and he's he's a fantastic hunter I, I would be I would be hard-pressed to find someone that could argue with that but is it is it is it aspirational? I don't know. That should be left to the individual. But you, in order to 
in order to be able to run a marathon every day, first you need to have some requisite level of fitness going into it. I don't think you need to do that. I don't do that. I in no way advocate for that, but it can be done. What's your opinion, James? <laughs> well, I mean, I'll go on the record and I'll say a couple of things. I think I think Cam Haynes is a huge inspiration for a lot of people. My, my brother, uh, he, he really loved the story with him and how he's overcome the cancer and different stuff, stuff like that. But, like, there's certain things that I don't really think that are a great image in the public eye. Like, when you throw a black bear on your shoulders, and I, I know how big Cam Haynes is. I don't think that bear was super big, but um, there's somebody taking a picture. Like, why do you got to do that and get the hero shots? And the I, I actually, I, I genuinely agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. But I think that's only something you would you would only recognize if you were inside the space. Mm, yeah, sure. I, I don't think the average person recognizes it, but what kind of pictures that show for somebody that doesn't recognize it? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, I don't think it's necessarily wrong. Like, people are like, oh, you shouldn't throw a deer on your shoulders. Like, you're going to get shot. Like, come on, really? Like, someone's going to shoot you because there's deer in your I've shoulders? I've done that like, twice this year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a time and a place for everything, right? And and that, that one particular black bear picture, like, you can see he's on the trail. So, and it's like, someone took the picture. You know there's other people around. Um, th- there's certain stuff that's just a little bit too extreme. Um, I, I do love the motivational aspect of things because right, people sure. need that. Sure. But there's certain stuff, man, that it, it grinds my gears because it comes back to this one simple thing. It's like just doing it for the gram, doing it for the likes. And that, that drives me crazy, man. That drives it's just drives me nuts. Well, I also think that it. Uh, this is my gripe with it. And so Cam Haynes is obviously a phenomenal athlete. And yes. he is a freak of nature. If. I don't think that you should be paying. I, 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 this is kind of like a, a tough subject because I, I feel certain I'm, I'm on the fence about it. The normal person shouldn't necessarily aspire to do something because that's a great way to get injured, right? So you, we were just talking about... And that could be the case too. See, we do not have all of the data points. We don't know what his, we don't know how his joint health is. Exactly. And even if there was some kind of issue, he wouldn't. He wouldn't be the first. He wouldn't talk about it, mm-hmm. and and he's gone on record as saying that. He's you know he said that you know when they're when he's tired or whatever he doesn't bring it up or if he's feeling down he doesn't bring it. Up. But you know what does it say about you know his his situation over time? But the, one of the reasons I say I don't think he's overtraining is because he still manages to do these feats um, season in season out. Mm-hmm. So can he handle it? Yes. Is he handling it? Yes. Um, if you look at the degradation of, of some athletes over time, you know, some athletes fall apart. Um, again, I think this is an athletic pursuit. It should be treated as such. Um, can you do things um, to maximize performance in the here and now that might not necessarily be conducive to long-term health? Definitely. Do I think you should do things to benefit performance for the here and now? Um, you know, that's, that's a question for every individual to answer for themselves. Yeah, but I I agree in that I my I love what he does. I don't advocate for it, but my I think the I think it's it's questionable, but I think the positives outweigh the negatives in terms of how uh, inspirational it is for folks, and um, you know as opposed to people out there that are making excuses. He he is not making excuses, and I think we need a hell of a lot more of that. Yeah, absolutely. That's very true. I, I totally agree there. That, that, and that's kind of why I'm on the fence about it. Yeah. Well, like, it, 
people just need to be careful and realize that though the situation or and just can in general is is not the norm and it's not something that just the average Joe should be going out and doing because you want, like I said, we want to be hunting for the rest of our lives. It's a great way to yep. freaking blow your knee out or, or snap an ankle or whatever. But there, there are benefits. Like uh, I, he does do traditional um, in the gym training. That's something that's, that people should take from. So mm-hmm. just a matter of, you know, it's hard. You know, if you're if you're uneducated on the topic, you know, you don't know what you should necessarily take from him. But what you should take from him is, um, he's not an excuse maker, and. He's out there every day trying to better himself. Yep. Yeah, for sure. That, and that's awesome. And then, and then this is a whole other rabbit hole, and I'm not going to get down it. But I, I just want to touch on this just because it's, it's very important to me. I mean, we're talking about the different exercises and things that you can do. But the whole other component, and especially guys are like, you know, I want to, I want to work out to lose weight and stuff like that. There's a whole other component, and it's what you put in your body, in the nutritional aspect. And I'm not going to go down that today. That yeah, we that, could do a pie. We could do a nutrition podcast. We could do a week of that, and we, we can we can talk about that some other time. But like, the, there, there's a lot there's a lot of other things that go into it too. For sure, for sure. Um, so touched on the uh, overtraining. Um, I, we brought this up on the phone when we were talking earlier. Um, I had mentioned that uh, you can't recreate the energy expenditures in the gym that you do in the field. Let's let's dive into that a little bit. So that's the entire premise of my business model. Is It's something that I call, and I'm, I'm going to be doing a lecture specifically on this at length, is something that we call anti-specificity. So um, what you sh- want to do, so how I said before, there's two separate components of of being an athlete. If you're a hunter, like I said, for all intents and purposes, as I'm as far as I'm concerned, you're an athlete. What you want to do on one hand is that skill specific work. Um, for a swimmer, that's your swim practice. For a baseball player, that's pitching practice or your traditional baseball practice. But the other component is that general, broad and encompassing strength and conditioning. Um, so as that relates to this, yeah. what you should be doing for hunting is hunt specific leave this leave these two things as as separate entities so anytime so go ahead with it your your question here what no that, are, i mean my question was going to be are hit me with some hunt specific training so i i think hunting should be left in the field and what we should actually be focusing on is the things that are going to become things that are going to keep you out of the field otherwise. So for a hunter, when I talk about anti-specificity and I talk about strength and conditioning, what we're actually talking about is things that are actually going to deteriorate while you're in the field. Mm-hmm. That's for, like I was talking about, ankle care, things like that, mobility. All that kind of stuff is actually what a hunter should be doing for their specificity as it relates. So the opposite of whatever you're going to do in the field is what we want to do when we're in the gym. Gotcha. We want to keep the, we want to keep a, a pretty clear dichotomy between the two, um, which might sound counterintuitive to some, but the problem is the more you try to replicate the same thing, the more likely you are to experience over overuse injuries. Um, and this is something that I've, I've perpetually been, um, I've been fighting against, you know, even in the other sports I train folks in is, um, the idea of people want to train specific. They want to throw, if they're a baseball player, they want to throw weighted balls. They just, you know, it's, it all has to be about specificity. 
but you can't get more specific than the action itself. I, I think if you are interested in doing hunt specific training, like, like we're talking here for wild t white, tail white tail hunting, the most specific you wanna get to that is white tail hunting. If you're not doing white tail hunting, do some other type of hunting. Have some kind of outcome in mind. Go pheasant hunting if that's all that's in season. But you shouldn't necessarily be trying, like, I don't know, like trying to pick up a weighted gun as heavy as you can. I don't think that necessarily <laughs> needs to be the case. Right, <laughs> right, right. Well, let me, let, let me just throw my two cents and make sure that we're on the same page. Because, like, this is what I've experienced. And this is not whitetail hunting. This was western hunting. So a couple years ago, I was going out to Colorado for my first elk hunt archery. And I went to the gym, and I was just pounding the weights, and I was doing rows. I was rowing like a madman. I was getting my cardiovascular health up. And, like, I felt like it was in awesome shape. And then guess what? I went out there. And one, the altitude kicked my butt, but two, I didn't do ruck marches. I didn't, I didn't walk around with my bow in my hand. And guess what? I was way underprepared. Yeah. All right. Well, here's, um, here's the counterintuitive part of this. Um, I've experienced elevation sickness. It's actually been the sickest I've been in my life um, was from elevation sickness. And it wasn't even at altitudes that were that crazy. It was from the John Muir wilderness in, in, uh, in California, I mean, which I don't think is all that crazy. Maybe... 10 to 12,000. Um, the unfortunate side of this, as it relates to Western hunting, is the healthier you are, the more prone you are to elevation sickness. Really? Yes. Is that why I didn't get sick this year? <laughs> I didn't work out as hard. <laughs> yeah. So there's something to be said for that. Um, and what happens too is healthy people know what their abilities are at sea level, mm -hmm. and then they try to take those same abilities to higher elevation, and it, it doesn't work. Um, right. It's, it's physiology. You don't have enough red blood cells to carry the, the yeah. oxygen. Exactly. And you're in trouble. Exactly. <laughs> you got a headache, and you're, and you're throwing up, and you're, and you're crapping, you know? <laughs> well, and the, the way you get around it, I think, is uh, plan more time, either just plan a scouting day where you're not doing anything, plan a day where you're just sitting there you're not doing anything sure well and that's what we did this year this year we actually went in and got there a day early and and, and you got to meet the outfitter and stuff a couple years ago like i said i trained like a madman doing cardio doing hitting the gym hitting the weights and i got out there and i gained two hours flying out of harrisburg pa and it was noon when i got into to hayden colorado got picked up we drove up to 8,000 feet altitude, so it wasn't crazy altitude, mm -hmm. and it, we went in for about, it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we went in for an evening hunt. You know, my buddy was already out there, um, he's like, dude, we had some bulls going this morning, he's like, you ready to go? I'm like, heck yeah, I'm ready to go. And when I started going, man, it's like, I couldn't even pick up my legs, Yeah. you know, and then that night, I got so sick, and I thought my hunt was shot, and then I started to acclimate, you know, within 24 hours, it was a huge difference, but like, just, just not training as far as walking around with, you know, because I was carrying my video camera, carrying all my different stuff, carrying mm -hmm. my bow, and I didn't train that way. Yeah. And, and that's the, is that the specificity you're referring to, just, just oh, to make sure well, you're on the same I, page? So, so I say, I'm not saying don't do anything hunt specific, but what I'm saying is just as you would practice for a baseball game, you would practice for a hunt. So... What I'm saying is these the two things between training your cardiovascular capacity should be kept separately from you could you could do it concurrently on different days of the week, right. morning and evening, whatever, but don't expect one from the other 
don't expect skill from the strength and conditioning work and don't expect the carryover. Yeah. Yeah, well I'm saying there's a there's a carryover, but don't just know where it's going to come from and know right. why you should be doing both. Right. Well and that's what I was gonna say, like in hindsight, if I would have done something different, I would have I would have done the, the weightlifting, the cardio, but like on other days I would have been just walking on the mountains with my bow and my pack. Yes. Which and is basically which do. is what you want to so with that you just you just want to hunt. You just want to hunt. Mm-hmm. But you want to hunt in similar to just like you would any other you want to hunt in a similar topography. Um those kind of things. So you do want to be doing both, but I, I am I. Overuse injuries are all too common for me to say that. In addition to getting out in the field regularly, that you should also be doing more of the same thing. I just I can't advocate for that in yeah, the slightest. That makes sense. Here's here's a really good way to break it down. So um, us as hunters, if you're out shooting your bow and then you get like a, one of your friends that's pretty jacked or is pretty muscular whatever and they go to shoot your bow and they can't even <laughs> can't get it back, it back. Yeah. right yeah. i mean that's that's a prime example of it like yeah. use in the field versus strength there yeah. is there is transitions but there's nothing like recreating yeah you can't you can't and i i've right. actually so as it relates to uh swimming there's there's these just, just a different a digression here but it's on the same kind of thing where there are these machines on the market that replicate the stroke of swimming they're like based, it's based on cords and pulleys, and you could basically replicate swim strokes on it. If you have the time to be on one of those things, you should just be in the pool. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> right. If you're, but if you're going to be doing strength and conditioning work, that's also valuable. If you're not, if you can't have pool time, that's when you want to do the anti-specificity stuff. Mm-hmm. So as a swimmer, that'd be when you do your back work. Um, so it's similar kind of thing. Um, but that's a common thing in, in, in swimming. And I, I actually got, so I actually got in a, in an email argument with the owner of that, one of those stroke replicator companies <laughs> because he was, he was mad about that. Oh, but, I can totally see you doing that too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's just a matter of there's, there's specificity and then there's what you think is specificity because you don't have enough data. Mm-hmm. And again, I, you need to be doing these things concurrently. Now, let me, let me ask you something different. And I'll make sure we drop a link into an actual video right before we started the podcast. Uh, John did a, a video for us called the Archer Row Corrective Exercise. Yep. Now, what's the difference of, of, of that? Oh, okay. So the that's a good point. So what we're doing with so the Archer's Row with a band, it, it's exactly what it sounds like. You just have um, like a, a band that you might see in a physical therapy office or something like that. Um, and what we're doing there is just we are replicating um, we are replicating what we see when we're pulling a bow. Um, the problem with the bow is you either get a left-handed bow or you get a right-handed bow. Um, so when we're talking about skill, usually what we're talking so skill doesn't come from muscles because muscles are dumb. Muscles just do whatever the central nervous system tells them to do. So skill comes from the central nervous system. When you are focusing on your training, your, your skill-specific training with the bow, you're doing target practice, that's a, a, a function of the central nervous system. The value of the archer's row is that it's, muscular, it's musculoskeletal dominant. So by doing that exercise, as opposed to training the pattern of the bow itself, you're actually training the muscles more than you are the skill. Muscle memory. M- muscle memory, yes, but also, so in addition to just the, the muscle memory, it's corrective because you could do it for both sides. 
and you're also getting more what we call hypertrophy or muscle growth. So the actual growth of the muscles on both your dominant uh, drawing side and your non-dominant side is going to be a, a benefit because you are you're building that wider base. So when when both sides of your back are bigger because you're doing that archer's row regularly, you're better able to perform that central nervous system dominant skill of actually drawing a bow. Right. So that, that way you're not overtraining one side and hypertrophying, as you said. Mm -hmm. it, it basically, you're not, you're not just strengthening one muscle group, you're strengthening both so that you're more symmetrical because we have a symmetrical body. Yeah, right. as opposed to like, if you think of someone like a, a professional arm wrestler, right. they have like a really big right, right side and a really small left side. <clears throat> Um, what we're trying to do is avoid that because the more we keep that symmetry, the better everything functions within the system. This may be a super dumb question. So no dumb questions, I, just dumb people. I, just <laughs> I've I've been having like shoulder issues lately, and um, I was wondering if it's just like over buildup in in my shoulder. So I don't have any pain in my left shoulder. Would that make sense into my right shoulder being stronger than my left shoulder? That are I would you, be getting that pain on your right side. Mm -hmm. Are you right hand dominant? Mm -hmm. So, or should it occur in the left? If people that are right hand dominant, see, and this this comes back to the fact that we're only in the field eighty days a year. So, what it again the eighty days if we're lucky. Um, but what we're looking at with that, sh so that's actually more of a function of just general wear and tear. That's common among everyone. So everyone's dominant side is stronger, but it's also less mobile. And that's from normal stuff that has nothing to do with hunting, like carrying groceries. So if you were just carrying groceries out of your car, you're going to double down on that right side and have right. probably le less in your left in your left side. So because that left side is less challenged, it has more, f more range of motion because it doesn't have as much tension on it from the muscles. Um, but that's common among most people. So one of the things that I really like as a simple corrective exercise for most populations is just a pull-up bar hang. If you have one of those perfect pull-ups or whatever the hell you have, uh, a, if you're so lucky to have a pull-up bar or you go to a gym that has a pull-up bar, the value of that is that just a, what we call a dead hang. So hands on the bar, arms straight, and just hanging with as much of your body weight as you can. If you can't hang because your, your grip's not strong enough, mm. what you want to do is just kind of place your toes on something and, and let as much of that weight fall into your arms as possible just to get those arms overhead. Because part of the problem, like I said early on, is that um, I, I kind of alluded to the idea of, of evolution. So we've evolved to be overhead a lot more than we are currently. We don't regularly get overhead. And that's what a lot of shoulder injury stems from is that we have these big pecs and we have these big lats. So you're basically your chest and your back. Both of those things are working to pull your shoulders down and forwards. And there isn't much we're doing outside of very specific purposeful exercise to get those shoulders up and back. Over dead hangs overhead are one of the ways to do that. Overhead presses are another great thing. The problem with overhead presses is people say they get shoulder injuries from overhead presses, but they're not actually getting shoulder pain from the overhead press. They're getting shoulder pain from their inability to do the overhead press and then doing the overhead press because their pecs and their lats are so tight. So a good um, a good metric for shoulder health is your ability to overhead press overhead press pain-free and with a, a significant amount of load. Um, but you don't get there by just overhead pressing. Those dead hangs are a great thing to do. Even if you just have a regular workout routine, they are a great 
uh, cool down exercise. Just hang there, even, like I said, with your feet on, on a, a plyo box or on the floor if you need to, um, or just actually hang just off of your grip. That's a fantastic way to improve your shoulder health and decompress your spine, as you would know. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Good. Awesome. I'll have to start doing that and see if that uh, starts correcting my shoulder issues. Yeah. Yeah, because those, those lats just get so chronically tight. They're stretching out your lats and stretching out your pecs are two things that anyone should be incorporating into their program on a very regular basis. That's, that's a huge issue is I do not stretch at all. Well, and if it doesn't help torn, I mean, you do work with a guy that, that has a chiropractic business right here. So <laughs> we can always check you out here, too. <laughs> that's very true. I need to start taking advantage of that. <clears throat> so, John, I know you had a couple topics also that you wanted to touch on. Um, what, do you have, uh, what do you have there that we can, we can dive into next? Um, so we, we talked a little bit about um, the idea of, of uh, you know, get physical preparation for uh, Western big game hunters as opposed to Eastern hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, so again, when we're training for strength and conditioning for the hunt, we're actually training very broadly. We're just trying to make you a better athlete so that you get better at the skill of hunting. Um, and so there are, there are, of course, differences between Eastern and Western style hunting. Sure. But what we're trying to accomplish in our fitness pursuit for the goal of better hunting isn't all that different from one to the other. If anything, uh, Western um, hunting is just an extension. So that's almost like a the next level of Eastern hunting. So if you have the fitness to Western hunt, you have the fitness to Eastern hunt. So it's just a matter of the more fitness you have, the better prepared you'll be for Western big game hunting. Um, so I don't think I don't think they're as different as they are just one being an extension of the other. Yeah, I mean that makes total sense too. Yeah, for sure. But otherwise, with again with both, just yeah, not necessarily. Um, so I, you know, there's probably people out there that are saying you know that they're totally different things, which is true. But if the injury patterns that you see across both of these populations are going to be the same, so it, it it's not going to be any different that you're seeing lower back injuries or you know issues at the knee. It's still the same type of stuff uh, from one population to the next, which is why it should be a similar program from one to the next. Although the the one thing that you'll see more uh, with Western hunts is unpreventable injuries. You know, just calamities of, of sorts. Right, you right. Know, rock slides. Due to the train. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, just grizzly yeah, bear yeah, attacks. Yeah, that's the street for the grizzly yeah. bear attacks. Yeah, which is that, that's that's something that uh, that's that's the the black belt of fitness, I guess, is training for the, the grizzly bear attacks. <laughs> I'm clearly not a black belt. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I think most people focus on too much that I think tends to be overrated but is actually worthwhile endeavor for hunters is um, what we talked about before when we were on the phone was what you said we referred to as core, which is that's basically the trend in the fitness industry right now is to refer to the abs or whatever as the core as opposed to abs or something else. Um, as, as Jocko Willing uh, so eloquently puts it, he calls it gut work, which I actually think might be one of my favorite terms for it because when he says gut, we're, we're referring to that anterior section of the core, which the, the abs, rectus abdominis, things like that. Um, because when you say the, the term core, it has different meanings to different people. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, it just it's the whole trunk. 
And if we're training the trunk and you have a, a, a lower back that's already over-involved, we, that's not a part of the core we should be training. So gut work, or just generally what I, I, I still call it ab work, is something we should be looking at. Um, RKC planks, that's something folks out there could um, do a quick YouTube search of. People think they could do a plank for 5, 6, 10, 20 minutes, whatever. RKC plank brings that time down to about 20 seconds, 15, 15 to 25 seconds, because oh. it's, it's so muscular system dominant as opposed to being, being able to just rely on passive structures. So when people are in those long-term planking competitions, they just kind of hang out on their shoulder blades and you're not really doing a whole lot right. just, just besides relying on totally. your, on your yeah. skeleton. I've, I've definitely done that cheating when mm-hmm. I'm working out. I'm not familiar with RKC planks, but um, something that, like, I'm like a broken record with my patients. You know, we do corrective care with them, and we get them to the point that they're rehabilitated, everything's moving and working properly in their spine. In the last phase of care, you know, I'm like, we're not putting flexion in your spine. Don't do sit-ups. Don't do crunches. It just That just irritates things. Do planks. Do a bird dog. You can Google that one. But RKC, I'm not RK, familiar with. R- RKC um, refers to, um, it's the origin of this exercise. RKC is Russian Kettlebell Club. So that's um, bas- just a, a style of training. It's just, so I'll just give them credit where credit is due on this exercise. Um, they also popularize, like, the Russian, the hard style swings. Um, so... There's if you see kettlebell swings, if you see CrossFitters doing kettlebell mm-hmm. swings, yeah. they're usually swinging all the way overhead, which is valuable for CrossFit because they're trying to have a consistent way from one person to the next to count reps for their competitions. Right. But the hard style swing, where it's basically just the hips and then the kettlebell comes up to about, um, you know, just par- your arms parallel to the ground. Um, that's also something that they popularized. But the value of the RKC plank is just that it creates so much more tension. Um, I'm okay with some level of flexion, but I, I agree with you largely about, about that. Um, and part of the problem with a lot of flexion-based exercise is um, something just a little bit more um, in terms of people with a kinesiology background might be a little bit more interested in, but that's the idea of the input of the rectus abdominis or the hip flexors in, um, in ab exercises. When you do flexion-based exercises, those those hip flexors tend to do a lot, um, which those hip flexors tend to be tight on people to begin with. Yep. Yeah. And then when we have some of those flexion-based exercises, it actually just exacerbates some of those issues. Um, and those hip flexors being tight is basically the, one of the causes of what we'd call anterior pelvic tilt, or kind of where that you're, you see someone whose butt kind of sticks out behind them a little bit that's anterior pelvic tilt mm-hmm. and that the rectus abdominis be, or the rectus femoris being tight is one of the causes um there are some good um rectus abdominis stretches out there or rectus femoris stretches out there but um i i wouldn't necessarily look at some of those flexion exercises because of that but like you said um so um anti-flexion exercises for the abs are a pretty good idea yeah well I, and i should step back a second so like i said at the beginning of the podcast like when I see patients, they're usually pretty wrecked. So we take x-rays of their spine, and usually there's a decreased height in the disc space. So it just it's a lot of pressure in the facets, and that's, that's just going really deep for the average person to, to comprehend. So, yep. but, but by and large, uh, core, core is extremely, extremely important. Especially when we are trying to create balance, and like I said, that, that lower back gets so tight. Uh, what we need to do is actually increase the tension on those abs because those abs help 
pull the rib cage down, which helps kind of lessen some of that anterior pelvic tilt. We've discussed this before, and this is probably something to to talk about. I don't think that we really touched on this enough or really at all. So uh, remember when we talked about like uh, like the counter muscles, if that makes sense. So like your 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 stronger muscle is going to pull against the weaker muscle. Yes, and that's where you're going to get like fatigue and joint pain. Like so so talk about that a little bit. Okay. Yep. So actually, that's one of this, that's another one of the reasons why right off on, on the onset of this podcast, I said um, that glute training or, or basically butt training is actually so valuable. So most people's hip flexors get very tight. Um, again, that's that little tiny muscle in the front of the hip that pulls the pelvis down. Um, what happens is with a lot of hunters is we're wearing pretty, pretty heavily heeled shoes like logger boots, and that exacerbates that pattern. Well, like you're saying how things in opposition to one another pull on each other, the, op- the thing that opposes that uh, rectus femoris is um, the glute max. So actually the big muscle in the butt actually works in opposition to that hip. So in, in opposition to that hip flexor. So if the glutes are strong enough, that lessens that. That's one of the important ones right off the bat. Another one that we, we've kind of talked about, how I said about the hamstrings are so vital. Mm. People's quadriceps, the, the rectus femoris can, depending how you classify it, be, be part of that group. Um, but the quadriceps tend to be dominant in most people, hunters or otherwise. Um, so getting those hamstrings a lot stronger is going to save those knees because of that. Um, you know, in athletes, you see that in, in soccer players or whatever because yeah. they're just kicking and relying so much on the front of the leg and not enough on the back of the leg. Yeah. yeah. Like basketball, you see a lot of hamstring injuries, mm-hmm. soccer, yeah, track. And same thing with those, those pecs and those lats being so tight. So I tell people if they are just looking for something to begin training or what I, these are what I call the performance muscles, the glutes and the traps. Glutes and traps are the things that you should be focusing on, and they will f- fix probably 70 or 80% of anything, and then everything from there is just kind of an extension of that. But those are the things that if you focus on glutes and traps, um, that fixes the majority of, not necessarily hunters, but people that are either sitting in a desk all day, sitting in front of the TV, or you know sitting behind the wheel of a car. Those are, and that's still hunters. So sure. people sitting in a tree stand, right? sitting in a tree stand. So I, I, let me cut you off for a quick second. So like for you guys, uh, just just to make this really simple. So when you have muscles that are contracted and, and not the glutes and the traps, it, it's just a rounded forward position. So just think about like the the caveman kind of pose, you know, where it's like rounded forward and then you know, uh, but human, uh, you should be erect, right? So when you increase the strength in your traps and in your hamstrings, that's going to make you more erect and not rounded forward. Yep. And just by having more, by as, if your regular position is more extended, like you're talking about where you're more erect, that's less time you spend in flexion. More time you spend in extension, the more time you can spend in flexion. So the more time you spend in flexion by itself, you have knee pain, you have all kinds of pain. But when you balance that out, you have more leeway. So as an example, I'm a pretty healthy guy. I spend a lot of time doing deadlifts and some of these extension-oriented exercises. I could spend more time sitting in a car 
than some of my friends can because they aren't they don't have they don't spend as much time in extension so they're more likely to experience that affliction based back pain dude that's huge for tree stand sitting i mean that's huge, <laughs> huge. yeah yeah yeah, and, and I'll throw in a chiropractic tip real quick, too. If you're sitting in your tree, sitting in your car with a, a wallet in your back pocket, that's that's really twisting you up, too. So get that out of your front. Put that in your front pocket. That That's actually <laughs> – that's something um, – anytime someone talks – like, I, I'm not – I'm not a clinician. I, I don't I don't deal with pain much. But if, if someone talks to me about some kind of back injury, that's one of the or what something like that. That's one of the first things I say is where do you keep your where do you keep your wallet? But again, I keep my wallet in my back pocket. It's I keep it in I keep it in the same pocket all the time. Yeah. But I I have more by being stronger and by being healthier. You have more wiggle room than other people would. Yeah. Right. And for yeah. some of you rednecks listening to, uh, that, that goes for your school can too. <laughs> <laughs> if you keep one in one pocket and the other in the other. You might balance it out. All right, John, we are getting here on an hour and a half. Um, yeah. Do you have some uh, some other topics that you want to hit before we uh, we close here? No, this is great. I mean, I'd be happy to come back on and, like we said, talk about uh, talk about diets a little bit more in detail. Yeah, for because sure. Nutrition is huge. Man. Not, not to... Um, I can, this is going to be a big cliffhanger here, but um, the difference in what you eat in the morning will determine how long you could hang on a sit while you're in in the stand. So should we just cut this here? <laughs> we'll, we'll cut there. I, I'm extremely interested to hear that. So, John, where can um, our listeners get in contact with you and find more information on your stuff? Cool. I'm at uh, uh, at Ruthless Perform on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can find us on there. Follow us on there. Um, we do the majority of our output is, is swimming related, but the more hunters we have following us, the more hunting related content we could put out. Um, otherwise, you can get a hold of me directly at john at ruthlessperformance.com or visit the site uh, ruthlessperformance.com. Um, if you have questions generally for the business, you can go info at ruthlessperformance.com. Um, but otherwise, you can find everything on, on that website um, that I just mentioned. And I'll have all John's uh, all John's contact information and links to his website and social in the show notes as well. So we appreciate you coming on, John. And with that, have a good night, everyone. The Human Advancement Podcast is a division of Ruthless Performance, whose focus is creating champion athletes through the application of sports science, expert collaboration, and the ruthless pursuit of excellence. You can learn more about Ruthless Performance by visiting ruthlessperformance.com, specifically through our online education tab. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Ruthless Perform. The Human Advancement theme was written by Bernie Wallace-Savage. Find him at wallacesavage.bandcamp.com and on Instagram at Bernie.Wallace Savage.